All right, guys, let's go. I'm very excited to share with you uh, something I prepared a lot for this week because this is a very technical class today. Today we're going to discuss current events. We're going to discuss the holiday that we're all in. In fact, we're in several holidays right now. First of all, over a third of the world is celebrating a holiday tonight. And it's worth mentioning that holiday because it's a holiday that celebrates a Jew. A Jew's birthday. Happens to be Today was also another Jew's birthday. Does anyone know whose birthday it was today? Your birthday. It was my birthday today. Yeah, today was my Hebrew birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. So appreciate that. So your birthday is the day after uh, Livingston's? Well, my Hebrew birthday was his English yeah. birthday. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit, first of all, um, okay. So, we're going to talk about today, not only today on the non-Jewish calendar, we're going to talk about today on the Jewish calendar, because today is a special day on the Jewish calendar. But first I want to just mention that tonight, many Hasidic groups have a custom not to learn Torah. Tonight. One night a year. It's called Nittelnacht. That was Tishabab. No, Tishabab also can't learn Torah on Tisha B'Av, but this is another night that you're not allowed to learn Torah according, not, not Jewish law, but Jewish custom. And there's okay. different explanations for that, and I wasn't able to look into it fully, but just to share with you, to scratch the surface, um, it is a day that's considered Kabbalistically to be extremely impure. It's a day of, of extreme negativity. And the impure forces get their sustenance from the Torah, from goodness, from spirituality. So it's one day, one night, especially up until midnight, when the powers of evil are so strong. So Hasidic, many Hasidim have a custom not to learn Torah because they don't want to give energy to the negative forces. So traditionally, it's a night when Hasidim would play chess or do their taxes. They should play Durak. Wait, today? Tonight. <laughs> Tonight. So I personally do not celebrate this one. I celebrate the Russian one, which is coming up on the 6th of January. Russian Xmas is on the 7th of January, so we celebrate the night before, right? It's also interesting to note that Christians celebrate Christmas like a Jewish holiday, right? The Jewish day starts when? The night before. So just a testament to the Jewish origins of Christianity, that they celebrate this holiday starting the night before. Okay, so I want to share with you a little bit about today in the Jewish calendar, and we're going to try to tie together a lot of amazing ideas. It is extremely profound, one of my favorite topics in the Torah, okay? So now, according to everybody, Jewish law, today, meaning starting tonight, on the Jewish calendar is the 10th day of the month of Tavis. 
And that is a fast day. Does anyone know what happened on the 10th of Tavis? So, yes? I don't know, but I have a question. Is it negative because of that? Or because of, Mike, is it negative because of the 10th of Tavis or because it's Xmas? Because it's Xmas. That's why it's so much negative? Correct. Okay. But the 10th of Tavis is also negative, as we will explain. And they happen to coincide this year. So the 10th of Tavis is a fast day because that is the day that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Assyrian general, surrounded the walls of Jerusalem. The siege of Jerusalem began on the year somewhere around, I don't have an exact year here, but sometime around the year of 597 to 588 BCE. The siege of Jerusalem which eventually led to Tisha B'Av, the destruction of the temple. Okay, so that is happening tonight. But according to several ancient Talmudic sources, there's actually more things going on. According to some sources, last night, my birthday, the 9th of Tavis, is also supposed to be a fast day, no longer observed as is the day before, the 8th of Tavis. So three days of fasting, which we don't do because it's too hard to fast for three days. But according to the actual Talmud, we should be fasting for three days straight. Why? So I'm going to share with you the what we know about two of those days, and the 8th we know about, the 10th we just spoke about, the 9th is a mystery. And I want to share with you some of the ex, the hidden secrets and explanations we have about the 9th of Tavis. That's what we're going to be discussing, focusing on tonight. The 8th of Tavis, the Talmud says, On the 8th of Tavis, the Torah was translated into Greek. In the year 246 BCE, Ptolemy, the king of the Egyptian Greek Empire, sequestered five and then later 72 different rabbis and forced them to translate the Torah into Greek. And the, Torah, the Talmud says, on that day, the world was enveloped in darkness for three days. So somehow that was a precursor for three days of darkness. And the question is, what was so bad about translating the Torah into Greek? To the extent that the Talmud says it was as bad as the day the Jews worshipped the golden calf. It was as bad as what? The worshipping of the golden calf. Oh, okay. To make the problem stronger, Moshe was commanded to translate the Torah into Greek. Into, into all languages. Moshe was commanded to write the Torah into 70 different languages. Greek being one of those languages. Why? To, to, good, good question, but the, seemingly to teach the Torah to the entire world. So why was it so bad when the king of Egypt forced us to translate the Torah into Greek? Moshe had already done it thousands of years earlier. So, unclear. Additionally, according to the Talmud, some of the opinions in the Talmud 
Greek is a language that a Torah is kosher. To write a Torah in Greek is actually a kosher language. That Greek is actually a very elevated language. And of all languages, a Torah scroll written in Greek, according to several opinions, is kosher. So why is it so bad that we've translated the Torah into Greek? Okay, you guys with me so far? So question number one is, what's so bad about the eighth day of Tevis when the Torah was translated into Greek? Now, we already talked about the tenth day of Tevis. So what about the ninth day of Tevis? Besides the fact that it's my birthday, what happened on the ninth day of Tevis to warrant it being a fast day? So let's look at the Talmud and see what the Talmud says. So if we look at the ancient Talmudic sources, as well as the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, it says, the rabbis did not tell us. We don't know. The rabbis didn't tell us what was so bad about the ninth day of Tevis. Now that's pretty weird. They told us it's a fast day. They told us to fast. They didn't tell us why. So I'm going to share with you three opinions why the ninth of Tevis was instituted as a fast day. So answer number one is the most uh, commonly accepted answer, and it appears in the prayer books that we're going to be saying tomorrow. There are certain prayers that are said on a fast day called Slichos, and in the Slichos it says very clearly what happened on the ninth of Tevis. It says that is the day that Ezra, who was the leader of the Jewish people when we returned to the land of Israel after our exile in, in Babylon. Ezra brought the Jewish people back to the land of Israel. And according to the prayers we're going to be saying tomorrow, that was the day that Ezra passed away. So there's a couple of questions that that leads us to ask. Does anyone want to ask any questions about why we're fasting on Ezra's day? Why is that weird? So I'll give you a hint. We don't fast on any other day for any other rabbi passing away. In fact, on the the, the yurt site of, of Moshe and of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, we dance and celebrate and drink. So why are we fasting on Ezra's yurt site? Question number two, like what, why didn't the rabbis tell us? <laughs> Is that worth keeping a secret? Is there something very secretive that we didn't want anyone to know? So, very unclear. And additionally, according to certain sources, the original Talmudic source, the Megillus Tainus, mentions Ezra as being one of the reasons why we fast on the ninth of Tevis, in addition to another reason that's not told. So, for three reasons, it's very hard to accept that Ezra is the only reason that we fast on the ninth, that we're supposed to fast on the ninth. So, enter answer number two. According to answer number two, the ninth day of Tavis actually corresponds to the 25th of January, of December that 2,000 years ago, when a certain Jew was born, the actual Hebrew date was the 9th of Tavis.
that the ninth of Tavis corresponds to the birth of Jesus. And that is exactly why the rabbis didn't say it explicitly. Okay? So now, we have two answers, okay? The third answer I'm going to save for the end, because I have to turn off the recording for the third answer. Actually, maybe I'll leave it on. Okay, I'll tell you the third answer now. Okay, third answer is brought down... What? You're not recording. No, I'm recording on my phone. I'm recording on my phone. The third answer is brought down in some of the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch. And it's based on an ancient manuscript. I don't know if we have the manuscript nowadays, but it's quoted in certain uh, medieval Jewish sources. And it was called Sefer Toldus Yeshu, the book of the descendants of Jesus. A Jewish book. But we don't know who authored it. It's not 100% authoritative. But according to certain opinions, the ninth of Tavis is the Yurtzeit, it's the day of the death of someone named Shimon Hakalpis. Who is Shimon Hakalpis? So according to the legend, Shimon Hakalpis, otherwise known as Simon, was a Jew who became the first pope. And it's unclear to me if it's some sort of a conglomerate of Peter, Paul, and Simon from the New Testament. But listen to this legend. Legend has it that this this guy named Shimon was sent by the Sanhedrin. He was a believer, believing Jew, a religious Jew, an observant Jew, who was sent from the Sanhedrin to become... A Christian. And this legend makes the most sense if you assume that this character was Paul. Because Paul is really the father of Christianity. Paul is the one that made Christianity into a religion, branded it, and sold it to the rest of the world. Paul, whose name was Saul, was on his way to stone Christians. He was going to like beat up Christians, and suddenly on the way, he had a vision of Jesus coming to him, which is a little bit fishy, and then suddenly became the most zealot Christian in history. He lived a few hundred years after Jesus' alleged lifetime, and he essentially made Christianity into a non-Jewish religion. He was responsible for getting rid of Shabbos, getting rid of kosher, getting rid of circumcision, and then bringing this new religion to the non-Jews. So according to legend, he was actually working for the Sanhedrin. He was actually a member of the Sanhedrin, the high court in Jerusalem. And he was sent to turn Christianity into a non-Jewish religion so that Jews would no longer be led astray by what was originally a branch of Judaism. It was a Jewish sect. Wait, this was Paul, and you said he was getting rid of Shabbos, culture, and circumcision? Correct, correct. Okay. So according to this legend, 
he passed away on the ninth of Tevis. And we fast in honor of his, of his life and death because he gave his life essentially to save Judaism from being perverted by the newfound religion. This was Simon. It's not clear, again, who he corresponds to exactly, but his name, according to the tradition, was Shimon, was Simon. Shimon, Simon. Yeah. And according to tradition, he actually lived in Rome, was the first pope, and he sent back to Jerusalem a prayer, which is in the prayer book, which we say every Shabbos, which is called Nishmas Kol Chai, which is, in my opinion, the most beautiful prayer in the prayer book, the soul of all life, and that he sent it back to show the rabbis, don't forget me, that I am uh, still a believer, even though I've lived, I've given up my life and lived the rest of my life in, in the Vatican. And um, there are some, some, some point out that his, the names of his, his the, 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 the letters in Nishmas spell out his name. So, again, it's a legend, but it's quite fascinating. And according to Rashi, the famous commentary in the Torah, um, Yochanan, otherwise known as John, Paul, and Petros, Peter, were responsible for writing Latin, making up Latin, and or or at least the alphabet of Latin. And uh, Rashi points out they were all Jews and possibly all religious Jews. So. Again, these are, this is all theories, but I want to try to tie these ideas together to explain the darkness of these three days and what it has to do with us. So let's try to put them all together. Let's put all these ideas together. Again, we have the eighth day of Tavis when the Torah is translated into Greek, which it shouldn't be a bad thing, right? Greek is a, is a very good language. A Torah scroll is kosher if it's written in Greek, according to some opinions. Moses was commanded to translate the Torah into 70 languages, including Greek. Why is it so bad? Why is it as bad as worshiping of the golden calf? Why did it bring darkness into the world for three days? Question number two, the ninth of Tavis, Ezra. If Ezra passed away on the ninth of Tavis, why are we fasting? Secondly, why was it not revealed? And third question is, and and then we have the additional reasons of the birth of Jesus or the death of Shimon Hakalpis, who was possibly the father of Christianity, who actually was working for the Jews. And then and finally it culminates with the tenth of Tavis, which is the death, which is the day that Jerusalem was besieged by Nebuchadnezzar by the Babylonians. One more ingredient I have to throw in here before we answer all these questions is we do not find that we fast on a Friday. There are no Jewish fasts that fall out on a Friday except for this one. For some reason, this one is stronger than all other fasts to the point that one of the medieval uh, authorities, the Abu Dran, says that if it fell out on Shabbos, which it can't according to our fixed calendar, but it could have... Back in the day, if it fell out on Shabbos, we'd actually be obligated to fast on Shabbos, which we never, ever fast on Shabbos, except for two reasons. We only fast on Shabbos for Yom Kippur, 
And if a person has a bad dream and they're really, really anxious about their dream, they're allowed to fast on Shabbos. But other than that, you're not allowed to fast on Shabbos. So why is the 10th such an extreme day that we do something that we don't do any other time of the year? Okay, are you guys ready for me to try to tie this all together? I want you to let you know, this is deep Torah concepts. So quite technical, but I hopefully we'll be able to explain it all in a way that we can understand. So let's, let's, talk, about, um, let's talk about Ezra. Ezra was the last prophet, according to many opinions. His, he was really Malachi who was the last prophet. He was also the last of the men of the great assembly, the Anshe Knesset HaGadola, who essentially sealed the Tanakh. They, from, at that point, they closed the Bible. They said anything up until this point is holy, is allowed to stay in the Bible. Anything coming later is not getting in. That's why the Hanukkah story, there's no scroll for the Hanukkah story. Right? It didn't make it in. doesn't fit into the coded, uh, codified Bible of the, of the Torah, which is made up of the five books of Moses and the, the books of the prophets and the writings, right? which includes the book of Esther and the Psalms. Okay? So Ezra essentially closed an era of Judaism. He brought the Jews back to the land of Israel from Babylon. He also, the men of the Great Assembly, were responsible for codifying the Siddur, the prayer book that we have, for codifying the prayers that we have in many ways. Ezra did one other thing. He instituted um, the writing that we have in a Torah scroll, was his institution. The, the letters existed, but they were not used for Torah scrolls. They were only used for very special purposes, not for regular Torah. And he made that the standard writing for a Torah. What's unique about that, those letters is if you open up a Torah scroll, you'll notice that each letter has, many of the letters have crowns on top of the letters, and those crowns are very significant. It's said that each of those crowns teaches a different secret about reality and about the meaning of the words. One other interesting thing about the time period of Ezra is that his generation, the Talmud reports, prayed that idolatry should be taken out of the world. They prayed for an end to the desire to worship idols. Now, it's very hard for us to relate to because none of us here have any desire, I'm assuming, to worship an idol. Anyone? Desire to worship an idol? So, <laughs> right. So they say that money, that the, our desire for money is like their desire for worshiping idols. They had a tangible desire to pray to something that they could look at and see. And it was so powerful. The, uh, the Talmud reports that had you, one of the great rabbis, um, one time was, was talking badly about one of the kings from, from, from Judea of old. And this rabbi said, uh, in, had a dream, and the king came to him, and he said, if you had been in my generation you would have run to worship idols. So we can't really understand that desire, but it was a very strong desire. So the rabbis, the Talmud reports, at the time of Ezra, got together and prayed that idolatry, the desire to worship idols, should be taken out of the world. And it says that their prayer was answered. 
313-449-8489. Who's with us? All right. So, um, so at the moment that the desire for idolatry left the world, something else happened. Do you know what also left the world simultaneously? So there's a concept that you always have equal and opposite pulls in life. If there's a positive force, you always have to have an equal and opposite negative force. So when idolatry left the world, what else do you think left the world? We lost something. We lost a power, a power that the Jewish people had had from the beginning of our assumption. We lost prophecy. Our ability to have prophets was lost. So this is very, very significant. Now the Talmud continues, just to tell you because it's very interesting and not for our topic, but the Talmud continues, the rabbis saw they were on a roll. They said, you know what, let's pray that the desire for inappropriate sexual relationships is also taken out of the world. So the rabbis prayed for that one also. And then it says the next day they woke up and the birds stopped chirping. The bees stopped making honey. The chickens stopped laying eggs. Essentially, the world was dead. They said, you know what? I think we need the desire for inappropriate sexual relationships. Meaning, (laughs) that's something that we need. (laughs) So they prayed it should come back. And it came back. Okay, that's, that's Ezra. So, what do these things all have in common? Uh, one last ingredient that this week's Torah portion talks about the Jewish people going down into Egypt. The beginning of the first exile of the Jewish people. And I want to read to you from this week's Torah portion the, what God says to Yaakov, as Yaakov is going into Egypt. Yaakov is bringing his entire family down to Egypt, and God says to him, I am Hashem, your God. Don't be afraid of going into Egypt. Because I will make you into a great nation. Anochi, I will go down with you into Egypt. And I will go out with you afterwards. What does that mean? That God goes with us into our exile. And this is a very important concept in Judaism. The Talmud tells us that whenever the Jewish people went into exile, into the world, when we left our land, the divine presence also went into exile. There's a concept that the Torah also goes into exile. That when we're not in our land, when we're not living on the highest spiritual level with a temple, that means the divine presence, God's presence, is dispersed all over the world. That means that somehow connecting to God is not in the same direct way as it would be in Jerusalem with the temple. So I, I want to now show you how all these concepts correspond. This is now a creative, my own creative response to explain 
everything to you. See at the Shemaya with Hashem's help. Okay. So the first, the tenth of Tavis was the first thing chronologically that happened on this day, and that marks the beginning of the first destruction of the temple. The beginning of the Jewish people going out of our land, being dispersed among the nations. The beginning of the destruction of the end of an era of revealed godliness in the world. Ezra marks the end of the era of prophecy. Again, the end of an era. The end of a moment. The translation of the Torah into Greek. What was the problem with it? Our job is to be a light to the nations. Our job is to bring the Torah to the world. Moshe was supposed to translate the Torah into many languages. The problem is that the intention of the Greek king was not that we should teach him Torah. It was that he should have the Torah on his own terms. The Torah became a book, like any other book, that now was in the hands of the Gentiles. It no longer needed the connection to the Jewish people to reveal the wisdom that's hidden in the Torah, behind the letters, the oral Torah. That's exactly the message of Ezra, who instituted Ksavishuris, the special letters that we have in the Torah that are adorned with crowns, because each crown represents the depth, the hidden secrets of the Torah that are hidden inside the text. Now it became a skeleton without a soul, and it opened up the way for the Christians to come a few hundred years later and claim it's our book. We can interpret it just as well as you can. We understand the true meaning of the book. And that ties into the birth of Jesus, which, according to Jewish sources, actually took place a few hundred years before the year zero. Why did the Christians set their calendar at the year zero? Why did they claim that he was born when he was born? Because it it helped their claim to say that Jesus was born right around the time of the destruction of the second temple. Because their claim is that the temple was destroyed because we didn't accept him. Because we didn't accept him as our savior, therefore God abandoned us. Yet in reality, according to Jewish sources, he actually was born a few hundred years before the destruction of the temple. So there really might not have been, probably was no connection at all, historically speaking, to those two events. But what happened at that moment? Suddenly, the Jews no longer have prophecy. The Jews, and yet comes along a Jew claiming to be the greatest prophet since Moses. And suddenly the entire world begins to worship a Jew claiming that he is God himself, which is the definition of idolatry. Now, whether or not Christianity is pure idolatry is debated by Jewish sages from the medieval time. According to, um, I believe, the way Ashkenazim understand it, Christianity is not pure idolatry. Although it's forbidden for a Jew to worship a person, uh, Christianity is considered belief in God plus someone else. So it's not pure idolatry, but the idea of worshiping a person is very antithetical to Judaism. 
So what's the con- yes? It's even worse than that because the second commandment is above the third command. They split God up into three. Right. It's worse than idolatry. Could be. It could be that that's a mis- that the the Trinity is a misunderstanding of a Kabbalistic concept, but uh, not for now. So. The golden calf. What's so bad about the golden calf? What was going on with the golden calf? It's crazy. We saw God speak to us at Mount Sinai. The next thing you know, we're worshiping an idol. So many explain that the intention of the Jews in making a golden calf was that they wanted an intermediary between us and God. Because it's very scary sometimes to connect directly to God. In fact, the Torah tells us that when the Jewish people sinned, God says, I will no longer accompany you to Israel. I will send my angel instead. Because we distance ourselves from the Creator to some degree. And we need an intermediary, a buffer. Because when God is in your presence, you have to act a certain way. So, our job is to connect directly to Hashem. In fact, the Rambam, Maimonides, explains the origins of idolatry. How did people go from worshiping God to worshiping idols? He says it's very simple. That people felt small. They felt unworthy of connecting directly to God. They said, you know what? Let's connect to God through His servants, through the stars, through the spirits, through the angels. And that way, who are we to talk to God? So essentially it was, back to what we were talking about before, like low self-esteem. Yeah. Exactly what the Hindus do. According to, I believe, uh, from my understanding, that Hindu, Hinduism is also God plus others. That Hindus, I believe, believe in one God, one creator, Brahman, but many different forces that they connect to God through. Yeah. Through the different gods, so to speak. So, but we believe that we're supposed to go directly to God and connect the nations to God. Instead, what Christianity said was, no, you can't connect to God except through a Jew. It's a mistake of that concept. We don't want people to worship us and connect to God that way. We want people to connect to God. We just want to bring the Torah to the nations to connect the nations to the God. So essentially, when the Torah was translated into Greek and the whole process leading to Christianity was a process of the Torah being basically watered down and and almost the soul of the Torah taken out, and then a mistaken concept of the way to connect to God is through a person. Who are we? We're intrinsically evil, says Christianity. We're intrinsically small. We can't connect to God. We can't save ourselves on our own. We need to go through a human being. A human being has, to, or God himself has to sacrifice his son for us, because on our own we couldn't do it. Judaism says, on the contrary, your smallness is your greatness. A lot of times people ask me, how could God care about me turning on a light switch on Shabbos? You ever ask that question? Do you think God really cares? The answer is, you know, people say, God cares if I kill a human being. God cares if I uh, have love in my heart. God doesn't care if I turn on a light switch. Well, compared to between you and God, let me ask you a question. Is there any difference between killing a human being versus killing an ant? When you're talking about the infinite, the greatness of God, none of it matters. On the other hand, it's all. God cares about everything you do because your greatness 
is the fact that we're so small. It doesn't mean that we need an intermediary to connect to God. We're not intrinsically evil. We have incredible beauty because God exists within each and every one of us. Okay, so just a few more ideas. So, the why do we fast on Shabbos if this day were to fall out on Shabbos? The tenth of Tevis. Why would we fast on Shabbos? So the Chasim Sofer, great rabbi from Slovakia, my hometown, said a few hundred years ago a very incredible idea. He said that really the tenth of Tevis is not a day of mourning. We're not mourning the destruction of the temple. He said, on the contrary, the tenth of Tevis was the day that it was deter- it was de- de- it was decided in heaven that the temple would be destroyed. It's the day when the future of the temple was determined. On that day, it was decreed that the temple would be destroyed on Tisha B'av. And he said, and so too, on that day, the tenth of Tevis, every year, it's determined, it's decreed whether or not the temple would be rebuilt that year. So we fast on Shabbos, on the tenth of Tevis, because the tenth of Tevis is not a day of mourning. It's a day of prayer for the rebuilding of the temple, because that's the day that Mashiach will be reborn, that the conception of the Messiah will happen. So whereas the rest of the world is celebrating the birth of a false Messiah today, we literally have the ability to pray for the birth of the real Messiah on this exact same day. This is unbelievable. So I want to conclude with an incredible idea from this week's Torah portion. Yes. So basically you're saying that this is the day Mashiach is supposed to be born and this is the day that... Not born, not born, but it's decided. Conceived. Conceived, conceived, so to speak. Conceived, and then this is the day they also will decide. They decided that the future, the temple will be destroyed on Shishabov and that when the future, and if the base time makers will be built within... This year. year. Today's the day, says the Chassam Sofer. So it comes out an amazing idea that literally these three days are all connected. Three days of darkness. The darkness is that we failed in some way to be the teacher of Torah for the world. Instead, the Christians said, no, we have the Torah. We're the new Jews. The Jews have been thrown away and abandoned by God. Whereas the world should be coming to us. We should be teaching the world to connect to Hashem. Instead, the world says, we don't need the Jews anymore. But on the contrary, we can't connect to God without a Jew. They believe that somehow they need a Jew to connect to God. But it's backwards. It's the wrong way. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Everyone's supposed to connect directly to Hashem without an intermediary. So I want to conclude with just one amazing idea from this week's Torah Parsha. It says, at the beginning of the Parsha, Yehuda approaches Yosef. He doesn't know it's Yosef. Now, if we remember the story, Yosef was sold into Egypt by his brothers. He went through many trials and tribulations, eventually rises up to be the second in command, the viceroy of Egypt. His brothers come down and he torments them. He keeps giving them all sorts of trials and tribulations. They don't know what's going on. He accuses them of being spies. He accuses them of being thieves. And finally, he grabs his younger brother, Benjamin, and he says he's keeping him as a slave. And 
Yehuda says, I can't do that. I can't let you keep him. My father will die without him. So Yehuda approaches his brother, not knowing it's his brother. He approaches the, the viceroy of Egypt. And he says the following words, Be Adoni, please my master. Let me tell you my story. And he begins to tell him how much suffering his father has gone through and how his father won't survive. And then he says, Take me instead of my younger brother. Take me as your servant. I will give my life to you. Just let my younger brother go home to his father. And at that point, Yosef can't control himself. And this is the greatest moment in Torah. Uh, I cry every year when I read this story. Yosef reveals himself. It's me, Ani Yosef. I am your brother that you sold to Egypt. It's been me all along. I was just testing you to see if you had, if you had repented, if you'd done tshuva. I want to bring you. I want. I don't hold any grudges against you. It was all from Hashem. That's the story. It's, it's literally like the most Hollywood moment in the Torah. It's like, uh, Luke, I am your father. That's literally what happens. You can imagine the shock that the brothers experienced at that moment. They couldn't, they, they, they couldn't understand what was going on. But, but now I want to teach you a Hasidic interpretation, which is absolutely incredible. Yehuda turns to Yosef and he says, Be Adoni. That means please my master. But we know the word Adoni is similar to the word Adon, right? Which the way we refer to God. And the word be means please, but it also means in me. Yehuda is teaching us how do we respond to suffering? How do we respond to the Egyptian tormentors who are trying to destroy us, to the anti-Semites, to the suffering in this world, to the hardships, to our challenges? We respond by saying be Adoni, inside me is God. God is inside me. And because God is inside me, I can overcome anything. I have infinite power within me. When you recognize that God's inside you, when you recognize the incredible power you have within, instantly Yosef reveals himself. The Egyptian who is tormenting you whether it's the anti-Semites or the suffering of your world or the coronavirus or, or any trauma or anything going on in your life, suddenly takes off its mask and says, I am your brother. You thought that it was coming from a place of evil, that it was an Egyptian who was torturing you? No, that was also Hashem. That was also God. When you recognize that God is within you and you stand up to the, t- to the trial, to the test of whatever the hardship is in your life and you recognize that this is from Hashem, then suddenly Hashem reveals Himself. He takes off His mask and He says, you know what? All the hardships you've been going through, that's right, all the hardships you've been going through, that was from me also. I'm the one that caused all that stuff that you just went through. I'm the one that brought the coronavirus to the world. I'm the one that brought the Holocaust. I'm the one that brought all the suffering. It was all for you. It was all a test for you to come to the place of recognizing, be Adonai, inside me is Hashem. When you get to that revelation, then all the other trials and tribulations fall away. And that's the message that we bring to the world against Christianity, is you are not evil. You don't need an intermediary to connect you to God. 
you have him within you already. Every Jew, and to some degree, every human being already has God within them. They don't need someone else to connect them to God. We are all the sons of God. As the Torah says, B'ni Bechor Yisrael, the Jewish people is my firstborn son, which implies the Jewish people is God's firstborn son. All human beings are God's sons. That's our response to Christianity. And to lighten up these three dark days so that the true Messiah, the true Mashiach can be born, let's all take upon ourselves to recognize the incredible power that we have within. Literally, infinite power, infinite potential is inside each and every one of us. And all we have to do is recognize it in order for the mask to come off and for Hashem to say, I was with you all along for these thousands of years of suffering, of of exile from your land. I was with you in the exile because I will go with you into Egypt and I will come out with you as well. But what if they don't realize, yeah, they know it's Hashem, but they don't know the reasons why they 